Good morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. My name is Phil Adams. I'm one of the pastors here in our network in North Rogers Park, West Rogers Park, and South Rogers Park. And I have the joy this morning of bringing um, you to God's Word. Uh, we're in a series called Explore God. If you've been here over the last four or five peaks, weeks, we've been going through some of the big questions about life and about God. Um, and I'm glad you're here. If you came in and you've seen some of the advertisements across the city, we're glad you're here. Please come and say, say hello at the end. But this morning, I'm going to be doing my best to answer the question, is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? If you've got a Bible with you, please turn to Matthew 26, 47 to 68. If you've got one of the house Bibles, you can grab them out there. If you put up your hand, someone will run and get you one, I know, as well. And in that Bible, it'll be page 486. Otherwise, it's Matthew 26, verse 47. Matthew 26, verse 47, or page 486. Also, at the end, we'll be doing some um, questions. If you text in a question to ask Rogers Park, I think. I think it'll be on the screen shortly. Um, 62953, you text in your question to that number. We'll get it, and there'll be some of us up here at the end answering the question as well. So what we're going to read in a second, we're going to be jumping into the, the middle of the historical record of the hours before Jesus was crucified. Jesus has had his last meal with his disciples, after which they went to Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount Olives in Jerusalem. And it's there in the cover of night that Jesus was arrested. And he was taken to the home of the high priest Caiaphas, who would have been the highest religious authority within the Jewish community. And so before this man, Jesus goes and he stands in this passage that we read. So let's read. We're going to read from verse 47 to 68. So we're going to read a little bit, but you can follow along. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came out of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should, do, should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat down with the guards to the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses did come forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am going to destroy the temple of God, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and they struck him and they slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let's pray. God, we come to you right now and we ask as we come to your word that you will Help us to focus, God. God, we will leave things back in our minds, God, that we won't be distracted by our phones or our thoughts, God, of this week, but that we will give you our full and undivided attention, God, because we're coming to your word. The God of all creation has spoken, and we get to receive that this morning, God, so may we have anticipation for what you're going to say and speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Last week, when the temperature plummeted well below zero, a phrase could have been very appropriately used. Last week, we could have very appropriately said that we were in the dead of winter. But what's interesting about this little phrase, the dead of winter, is that for most of history, that phrase was not a kind of poetic exaggeration. It was a lethal reality. Because until well into the 20th century, mortality rates increased substantially in the winter months. For communities around the world, every winter, this challenge from outside of themselves, outside of their control, was placed on them. The rain, the wind, the snow, the polar vortex. And the the question had to be asked every year by these farming communities, will we survive? Will there be enough food and fuel to survive? Will we have enough shelter as the plants die, as the birds and the animals migrate south, as the cold sets in? How many will we lose? In the dead of winter, how many will we lose? And we too experience this every year, maybe not to the same extreme or maybe in Chicago to the same extreme. But every year as the winter sets in, what's happening is the tilt of the earth leans us away from the sun and our days become shorter and shorter and the sun gets lower and lower in the sky until what is called the, called the mid-winter solstice. When our planet spins just far enough around the sun so that there is a moment that sets in motion the transformation of our weather after which our days start to become longer and longer and the sun gets higher and higher again and the switch happens in a moment. Every year there is a moment when we are usually tucked up in our beds, deep in our dreams, when unknown to us our planet passes a kind of midwinter finish line and we start moving back towards warmth. Back towards light, or historically for farming communities around the world, back towards life, back towards growth, back towards hope. The days stop becoming shorter and start becoming longer and longer, and the sun gets higher and higher. The days get warmer and warmer. And for us in the 21st century, we snooze through this moment. But for historically, this moment has been monumental. Structures and tombs were built around the world to capture this moment. One of the best examples of this is in Newgrange, just outside Dublin in Ireland. You can hopefully see a picture maybe up on the screen. This structure was built 5,000 years ago, long before the pyramids were built. And it was likely built over multiple generations. It is 85 meters wide. It's 14 meters high. Surrounding the outer ring are 97 slabs, each weighing five tons. On top lies 100,000 tons of stone carried from nearby mountains. 5,000 years after it was constructed, this chamber is still entirely waterproof. But what makes this, what you see up there, a masterpiece is not its size, it's not its durability, but its precision. Because every year, at exactly 8.58 a.m. in the morning of the 21st of December, a beam of sunlight hits an opening above the entrance. And then a shaft of light concentrated down to about 15 centimeters wide slowly moves along the passage until it arrives in the inner chamber. And then for 17 minutes, this narrow sunbeam illuminates the underground middle chamber for 17 Minutes, a room that has spent the year in darkness for 17 minutes is lit up. And this 17 minutes is the precise moment that the earth passes the midwinter finish line and the northern hemisphere starts moving back towards warmth. From that moment on, the sun will be nearer, the days will be longer, a new life will begin. Neil McGregor, the director of the British Museum, writes about standing in the chamber when the light comes in. And he says, as the sunbeam moves along the passage, it is not, it is impossible not to feel that the light is coming to seek you out in the darkness, to find you and to change you. And for whatever reason, New Grange was built. It is a 5,000 year old structure that speaks of a kind of redemption amidst winter. It speaks of light amidst darkness. It speaks of hope moving forward.
And I give you this long illustration. I tell you about this because for millions of people around the world in this city and in this room, Jesus has added redemption amidst winter. Jesus is that light in the darkness. Jesus is that hope moving forward. But I tell you, Jesus isn't just redemption for a season. He's not just light for a moment, but he's the hope that rises and never sets. So another way to ask this morning, is Jesus really God? Might me to ask, are those that believe he is and those that experience him to be, are they right? And if they are, how do we know? A Hindu scholar of world religions wrote this. He said, I can't understand why you Christians present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's, it's not a book of religion. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race. There is nothing else in the whole of religious literature of the world to put alongside it. And what this, what this Hindu scholar is saying is that there is no other religion that bases its entire system of belief on datable, historical, discoverable events. Or to put it another way, there is no other religion that binds its beliefs inseparably to historical events seen and recorded by the watching world. Or to put it another way, Christianity boldly declares something has happened in history and we can't wish it away. We know about Jesus the same way we know about anything in history. Whether it be last week or last millennia, we compile historical facts as, as we listen to eyewitnesses and we look at verifiable records that have been kept. And so we know about Jesus the same way we know about the mathematical genius of Newton or the philosophy of Plato. When it comes to Jesus, we look at the historical records written by those outside the Bible, by people like Tacitus and Josephus, who were not Christians. We look at the historical records within the Bible like the writers of the Gospels. And we can listen to the Jewish scholar, Rabbi Samuel Sandmel, who says that those theories that say Jesus was not actually a real historical figure, those theories are not accepted or even discussed by scholars today. And when we compile all of this together and we check for reliability and we see that the first biography of Alexander the Great was written 400 years after Alexander the Great had died, while the Gospel of Mark, a historical record of Christ's life, was written approximately 40 years after Jesus' death during a time when many eyewitnesses were still alive and could easily refute Mark's account of history. And we see the same is true for Luke's Gospel, who opens his historical record by saying he is recounting the events just as they happened by those that first seen it. So what we know at the most foundational level is that Jesus lived a life embedded within history. We know Jesus lived a life that was embedded within the particulars of time and place. He talked and he walked. He slept and he laughed. Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is not an idea. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He had a brother called James. His life drew people to listen and follow. He was loved by some and he was hated by others. And as mundane, as normal, as relatable as these statements may be, the famous saying still rings true. All, of, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned have not had the same impact on the world as this one solitary life. Something has happened within history, and we can't wish it away. When most people think about Jesus, they think about his character and how we see tenderness without weakness. We see boldness without harshness. We see humility without uncertainty. We see unbending convictions with approachability. We see insistence on truth always bathed in love. We see power without insensitivity. We see passion without prejudice. We see him eating with oppressors to the astonishment of the left. We see him eating with prostitutes to the astonishment of the right. He continually showed a freedom from the pressures of society. He didn't avoid the rich and powerful, yet he showed no need for their approval. 
He was constantly saying to people, fear not, don't be afraid. He was always where he was meant to be, and he was never in a hurry. And he stirred in people's minds the question that he still stirs today. Who is this man? If you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, the historical accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you throw in Acts as well, which I would highly recommend you go and read rather than just listening to me. But what you will see is that in a sense, throughout Jesus' life, he often kept things close, close to his chest. Sometimes he speaks in parables with a little bit of mystery, with illusion. Sometimes he's careful around whom he says what. And then other times he's incredibly direct. And one of the reasons for this is that in the first century Jewish world, Israel is under Roman occupation. And the people are desperately waiting for a hero to save them, to kick the Romans out. And this hero, or what was known as the Messiah, was a figure written about throughout centuries past in Jewish writings. Prophets like Isaiah had prophesied that this Messiah would come and he would free Israel. It's where we get that term, that, that idea of someone being a, having a Messiah complex or a savior complex. And one of the reasons Jesus speaks in parables with a little mystery, with illusions, sometimes careful around whom he says what, is because Jesus is reframing what it means to be the long-awaited Messiah. People are waiting for a fighter. People are waiting for someone with prestige, a political figure. So what we find Jesus doing, instead of saying, I am the Messiah, Jesus takes the society's misunderstood idea of the Messiah and he he reframes it and he infuses it with true meaning. Jesus does this beautifully during his first public message when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. What Jesus is doing by saying all of that in that opening section of the Sermon on the Mount is lifting his listeners' attention away from a political kingdom to a greater kingdom. A greater kingdom where those that are the blessed look very different to those that are deemed blessed in any human political kingdom. He's stirring the imagination of first century Israel so that they might realize that their dream for a political freedom is too small a dream. He's questioning the story that they are telling themselves that they are living. And he's saying, your story's too small. Rogers Park, we assume a story as well. Or we breathe in a story from the culture around us. The story of progress. The Western and maybe increasingly Eastern story of progress by way of science and technology and the construction of an increasingly prosperous society is assumed to be the true story of the whole world. And Jesus would say, your dream is too small. But in the passage we read earlier, Jesus gets direct about what it means to be the Messiah. As we read, Jesus has been arrested and he's brought before the high priest Caiaphas. And in Matthew 26, 59, we read this. Now the high priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. The religious system of the day wanted Jesus dead. His teachings and claims were unsettling the whole religious um, leader's hierarchy that they had. Jesus was loosening their grip on power. And so they looked for witnesses that could disparage Jesus. They wanted him gone. If you read verse 60, it says, But they find none, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Many were willing to speak negatively of Jesus, but none of their claims were, would stick. So they got desperate. We read in the second half of verse 60, At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And we know from another gospel, John 2, 19, that Jesus did say this, but it wasn't a threat to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and then somehow rebuild it. He was alluding to another kind of temple that would be rebuilt after three days. Then verse 62 says this, And the high priest stood up, and said, have you no answer to give? What is it that these men testify against you? What's their problem? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, which means I demand you tell the truth and swear on the living God and tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what this high priest is really asking is, are you the Messiah? Are you the political leader sent by God to lead and free Israel from oppression? Who are you? And Jesus' answer is very interesting. And remember, Jesus has been reframing what it means to be the Messiah. Jesus responds in verse 64, and he says, You have said so. He doesn't say, Yes. And he doesn't say, no. What he's saying is, that's your way of putting it. There is truth in what you say, but those aren't the terms I would use because you're thinking the Messiah is a political hero. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, these are the terms I would use for who I am. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. In two statements, by referring to himself as being seated at the right hand of power from Daniel chapter 7, and one day coming in the clouds from Psalm 110, Jesus is using vivid and clear terminology that can only be taken to be interpreted as claiming himself to be equal with God. And as we can see from the response of Caiaphas in the next verse, that that is exactly the claim that Caiaphas heard. Verse 65 says, says, the high priest tore his robes and said, he uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Verse 66, then Caiaphas asks the other leaders, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And they spat on his face and struck him and slapped him saying, prophesy, you Christ. Tell us which one of us hit you. Why did they say he deserved death? Because Jesus claimed to be equal with God. The thing is with Jesus, there's a point where you have to go all in or you have to walk away. You have to go all in or you have to walk away. C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. There's no other options. He didn't intend there to be any other options. Lord, lunatic, or liar. And it's with these options we either go all in or we walk away. And maybe you're here today and you're trying to decide, Lord, lunatic, or liar. Maybe you're trying to decide all in or walk away. The incredible thing is that in the passage that we read, everyone walks away. Everyone gets up and walks out that door. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other Jewish leaders most definitely rejected Jesus as God. They said, crucify him. But also in verse 56, it says, when Jesus was arrested, then all the disciples left Jesus and fled. Where were the disciples while Jesus was being interrogated and spat on? Where were his friends? They'd walked away. But Peter, maybe slightly better by trilling quietly in the distance and sneaking into the courtyard where Jesus is being questioned, maybe he does slightly better. 
But then when asked in verse 70, which we didn't read, but it's the next part, when he's asked in the courtyard if he's with Jesus, three, t- three times he says, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. The disciples walked away. Everybody walked away. The disciples, Jesus' friends, were a ragtag crew of fishermen and tax collectors, and now they had disappeared, fearing for their lives. Not entirely sure. Seemingly lacking the courage and the conviction to stand by Jesus. And this leaves us with a serious problem. Because as Jesus went on to die the death of a criminal on a cross, we read in Luke's gospel that all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee since he started his ministry, they stood at a distance watching. The posture of Jesus' friends leaves a hole in history. Because where's their conviction? Where's their courage? Where's their leadership? And the reason the scattered, fearful posture of Jesus' friends leaves a hole in history is because we have clear historical evidence that under their leadership in the coming years, over the next 250 years, Christianity grew to 6 million people. There's a hole in history because history attests the early Christians had no great financial resources. They had no buildings. They had no social status. They had no governmental approval. They had no respected educators. They were disowned by Jewish synagogues. They had no institutional backing or ancient tradition to appeal to. And yet somehow, from somewhere, the conviction the disciples had and the love they gave made them unstoppable. Something happened to take a group of discouraged, confused, scared followers of Jesus who had walked away. Something happened to bring them back and enable them to have the conviction to risk their lives and set the world on fire with Jesus' teaching. Something happened. The Jewish, the Jesus Seminar is a group of scholars Many of them are atheist and agnostic and irreligious, and they publish some of the most anti-Christian literature in the world. And they've looked at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a letter written between the early churches. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 2 to 8, and they've studied this passage, the Jesus Seminar. They've studied this passage back and front. They've shook it hard to try and figure it out. And they've come to the conclusion that it's a poem or it's a creed that was recited by the early church. Some say within months of Jesus' death. And this is what it says. Written by Paul, one of the founders of the early church. Someone who hated Christians until he became one. It says, for I delivered to you as one of first importance what I also received. And then here's the creed or the poem. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And Paul adds an extra line on the poem and says, Last of all, he also appeared to me. The vast majority of historians across the board, Christians, religious, unaffiliated, believe three certain historical facts across the board. Jesus died by crucifixion, the most excruciating and effective death. He died. Secondly, the disciples truly believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They truly believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Thirdly, Even people who weren't previously followers of Jesus believed Jesus was raised from the dead. One being Paul, who was actually an enemy of Jesus, and then Jesus' brother, both of whom went on to die for what they saw. Three historical facts 
by historians across the board, atheists, agnostics, irreligious. Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples truly believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and even people who weren't previously followers of Jesus believed Jesus was raised from the dead. So the challenge for all historians is finding a theory that best explains these facts. And the truth is that there is no other hypothesis other than the resurrection that comes close to explaining what happened. A very small group of historians believe that what's called the hallucination theory, based on the fact that people can hallucinate seeing somebody that they loved after that person has died. So they say the disciples hallucinated seeing Jesus. And that's why they really believed it. The problem is hallucinations don't happen en masse. They definitely don't happen in the lives of those that dislike the person who's died. As one person said, to avoid the miracle of the resurrection, you have to create a miracle of mass hallucination. The second theory, which is believed by an even smaller group of historians, which they say is about 2%, is the stolen body theory, that the disciples went in and they stole Jesus' body and they faked his resurrection. The problem is that this theory doesn't explain the renewed courage in the lives of the disciples. What took them from running away? And nor does it explain why they went on to die for what they knew was a lie. And that's it. Simply the majority of historians who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus look at the facts and simply say, we don't know what happened, yet we know something happened. And yet still, history demands an explanation for why thousands of Jews would overnight come to believe that a human being was the risen son of God and then go on and be willing to die for what they saw. Something stole their fear of death. The novelist wrote this, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet equal in force in its electrifying intensity. If we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we believed in the resurrection itself. Something in history happened, and we can't wish it away. I wonder how long it took those ancient Irishmen and women to work out that exact moment when the seasons began to change. That moment when the earth passed the mid-winter solstice, after which the days would be longer and the sun would be higher. What tools did they have? Were they expert astronomers? Did they study the intricacies of the sun? Did they, did they follow it every day, tracking its rising and setting? Or how long did they live without noticing? For how many years did people pass through winter into spring with just a vague understanding that at some point it was warmer? How many years were they watching the seasons change before realizing there is a moment that can be pinpointed? Before Newgrange was built, were there kids that just went outside and called their parents, Mom, Dad, it's warmer today. It's just a little bit brighter. The days seem a little longer. I feel its warmth. And maybe it was those kids that decided to figure it out. Maybe it was those kids that grew up to become the experts and realize every year there's a moment to be celebrated. Here's the thing. Before I started studying, that's me, before I started studying any of the intricacies of my faith, I was a child who simply felt warmth. Before I started studying any of the intricacies of my faith, I was a child who simply was drawn to its warmth. And I continue in my faith not because of any kind of expertise, but because I love the warmth from the sun. Some Christians come to faith simply by personal experience, which leads them to discover history confirms what they already knew. 
Some come to faith by delving deeply into his historical discovery, which then leads them to personal experience. But at the end of the day, followers of Christ ground their belief that Jesus is God on the coming together of both. On the coming together of astronomy and warmth. On the coming together of history and experience. I asked my wife Ruth on Thursday night, how do you know Jesus is God? And without missing a beat, she said, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Something has happened in history, and I can't wish it away, but also something has happened in my life, and I can't wish that away either. Throughout the Old Testament, the first portion of our Bibles, there are countless prophecies as to who the Messiah would be. Centuries before Jesus' birth, it was prophesied Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be Jewish, he'd be from the tribe of Judah, he'd be a descendant of King David, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be hung on a tree, that he would die between criminals, and it all came true. There are passages like Isaiah 53 that give incredible accuracy to the life of Christ, despite the fact they were written 700 years prior to Jesus being born. That's something that history has to grapple with. But what these verses and prophecies also do is they place history within the true story of the whole world. The Bible tells a story that is the story of which our lives are a part of. And once our lives are infused with our true meaning, only then can we know what to dream for. Humanity's problem isn't our lack of prosperity. That's a secondary issue. So no advancement in science or technology can be our savior. A salary increase might give us sunshine for a day, but the sun will soon set. A new relationship might give us blue skies for the afternoon, but the storms will come. A cure for cancer might give humanity summer for a season, but winter will come again. Until we know our need, we can't know our savior. Until we know our need, we won't know what to dream for. This historically accurate, life-changing book tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The story of this beautiful, historical, relentless book is that without Christ in our lives, we are actively rejecting God, living without him as if we don't need him, walking away from him. And God says, that's your problem. But the story of this beautiful, historical, relentless book also offers us the solution. For centuries, it was foretold as the solution. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was born, read like this. My servant grew up like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. God didn't just reveal to us the problem, he provided for us the solution. Jesus didn't just provide us with what to dream for, he provided the dream. Jesus came, he lived a life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved. Jesus took our place in judgment, and he gave us his place as a child of God. So that our shame would be removed, our guilt would be gone, and then he rose from the dead, one day return, and usher us into God's presence where he will vouch for all who place their trust in him. And right now, all of creation waits in longing for Christ's return. He will put all things broken right again. Roger Spark, I don't know what kind of savior you're dreaming for. 
and your dream is likely good. But if it's not wrapped up in what Jesus offers, namely himself, your dream's too small. The scandal of Christianity isn't just its broadly sweeping claims about truth. The scandal of Christianity is its particularity. Christianity boldly claims that everything turns on one moment in history. And on that moment as to the question, who is Jesus, we have to make a call. All in or walk away. Maybe you're here and God is working in your life right now. Maybe you feel him drawing you to himself. God made a way to draw you back towards warmth. Back towards light. Back towards life and hope. Back towards himself. Don't leave this morning without giving your life to Jesus. Jesus is redemption amidst winter. Jesus is light amidst darkness. Jesus is hope moving forward. But Jesus isn't just redemption for a season. He's not just light for a moment. Jesus is the solid, the steadfast, the immovable hope that rises and will never set. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we are in awe, God. We are the tiniest reflection, God, of your creativity, the tiniest reflection, God, of your glory, of your image. God, how incredible are you that you write the story of creation, the story of history, and you step into it to fix it, to redeem it, to take what was broken and make it whole again, God. And you do it, God, because for God so loved the world. God, we thank you, God, that you love us, that you would give your life for us. So, God, I pray that we will see you and that we will be all in for you, God, and that we will give our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. We're going to answer a few of the questions, that, all the questions that got texted in. I've got up here with me Jamie on our pastoral team and Parker. He's just a generally smart guy. <laughs> here we go. If I start... If I start to believe that Jesus is God, let's do it up here, doesn't that mean I'll have to deny all other faiths and claim that they're wrong? Isn't that arrogant? Well, um, okay, so uh, if you missed last week, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is go back and listen to the message from last Sunday because the question we asked then was, is Christianity too narrow? And that's essentially what this question is asking. Um, I'll give you the, the short of it right now. And the answer is that uh, Christianity makes a claim that can sound arrogant. Jesus is the only way. If you believe this, you are going to be saying that all other faiths are wrong. But every other faith is saying that you're wrong in, making, in believing that. Um, everybody is making exclusive truth claims. And so the question is, which one, is, which one has the most going for it? And if what Phil said today is accurate, if Jesus really is God who claimed to be the savior of the whole world, then he's the one making that, that claim. It's not something that you're claiming. And so um, I wouldn't say that, that in, in uh, believing that Jesus is God that you are being arrogant. I'd say that you're aligning yourself with truth and that Jesus is the one who's making the claim in the first place. And so if someone thinks that it's arrogant, they can take issue with him. They can go talk to Jesus about it and they can see, you know, they can, they can wrestle with uh, whether he's for real or not. It's good. It's really good. Next question. What do you make of someone like Gandhi, someone whom the world looks up to as a morally good man and yet didn't believe that Jesus was God? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple different ways we could go with this. Uh, real quick, first, can you be good without God is kind of maybe implication of this question. And second, could, could Gandhi be saved without God? Um, so what do we do with this? Does this throw our whole system off that there's people who act good who aren't Christians? Um, I would say absolutely not, right? Like, we believe everyone's made in the image of God. We believe that God's law is written on our hearts. 
And insofar as we recognize people as having value and worth, like that makes sense in a Christian framework, in a Christian view of reality. We can affirm that our atheist neighbors might be really good people. They might be really good to their kids, right? The, the problem is, does that make sense on their worldview? Does that make sense in their frame of reference? Um, makes sense in ours if you think to Romans 2.14. Um, Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts excuse or, or accuse them. And so, can someone be good without believing in Christianity? Well, well, yes and no. They can act morally right. They can do good things that are praiseworthy. And when they do that, we ought to affirm that. Man, Gandhi did some fantastic things. Praise God that he used them in that way. But secondly, can you be saved outside of Christ? Can, can you be good in that sense? And Man, no. Gandhi wasn't good enough. Mother Teresa isn't good enough without Christ. We're not good enough without Christ. That's the whole point. So can you do good things morally? Absolutely. But everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs Christ. Let's pray. Next question. I'm not sure if I believe that Jesus is God. What would you, do, would, what would you recommend I do? It's a good question. I'm glad actually you put that in there. Please, please come up. A simple thing is please come up and say hello at the end. Um, if you're here and you don't know people, please come up. One of the things that the church is for is to reflect the glory of God. You can hold us to that. Um, we've got small groups here that you can pl plug you in and you would get into the word and you'd be around people that do believe Jesus is the Son of God and they would be speaking into your life. And they're the people and we're the people to ask and to poke and to prod. And the Bible says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So don't, so don't give up. Um, and please come and say hi at the end. Let me add something real quick. Um, some of you all may have heard of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal basically put together this thought experiment where, you know, if, if you have this option, believe in God or don't believe in God, um, you know, with everything that's at stake, what, at stake, and you don't have proof for it, what makes the most sense to do? And logically, the best thing to do is just believe in God. Um, because you, you live a great life now, and then if there is a God, you win in the end too, right? Versus the alternative to that. But he also said, uh, well, well, that's not very persuasive in the sense, like, like may, maybe, I, maybe I should do that, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to believe. So, so like, what do I do if I don't believe, even if I want to believe? And what he said was, well, start doing the things you would do if you believed and see what happens. So, so start doing all those things. Start going to church, start talking to people, read the Bible, pray, and, and see what happens. See, see if God shows up in the midst of your seeking. Awesome. Besides the hope of heaven... To what degree or in what ways are we, the church, meant to be instruments to God's transformation while people live on earth? Are we to blame them when the world suffers? Parker, were you? Yeah. Um, so here's, I'll, I'll take this. Um, all right, so the Bible, uh, the two foundational ideas at the very beginning of, of the book of Genesis, very beginning of the Bible, one is the idea of creation, that God made the world and he made it good. And the other one is, the idea, is, is this idea of fall, uh, of sin. That uh, people rebelled against God and everything in the world was affected by, uh, by this rebellion against God and by, by the presence of sin in the world. And so the goodness of creation and the brokenness of creation, uh, creation and fall side by side are held in tension by Christians as we look at the world around us. And so um, God calls us, when, when he saves us, he calls us to then be people who go back into creation to, to, to work to restore it, to set things right in the meantime. But we also look at it, um, are, we, are we to blame when the world suffers? Well, if the world's suffering because of things that we're doing, or we're not living out that redemption, uh, yeah, in some ways we are to blame. We have a calling to, to, to act in such ways as to, to make the world better, to, to build it up as best we can. But we also recognize that that tension is going to exist side by side as long as this world goes before Christ returns. Only he will set it right once and for all. Yeah. Amen. It also just gives a really good opportunity for us as believers to acknowledge that we do a lot of dumb stuff and we break, we break stuff in, the, in this world and let's see what God's doing in our lives to transform us. So that's just a way also you can come in from a, of a posture of humility into that and saying that, that we in no way are not sinners or we have broken the world in the same way that um, we're saying that everyone has. 
When Jesus is dead, how can he still be God if God is eternal? Short and snappy. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. I like this one. Um, when God is dead, how can he still be God if God is eternal? So uh, I think we're, we're mixing something up here. Uh, as humans right now, we all had a beginning uh, when we were born, right? When you die, you don't snuff out of existence. Uh, the Christian doctrine is that you have an eternal soul, an everlasting soul at least. Uh, it had a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. And so we'll either spend eternity with God or spend eternity separate from God. But um, when we die and we leave this world, we don't snuff out of existence. And so um, when Christ died, it, it wasn't, he wasn't poof, gone, and then there's this breakdown in the Trinity. Uh, but a second important part to think about is that Christ had two natures. Uh, when he came and was born uh, of Mary, he took on a human nature. And so he had a divine nature and a human nature unified in one person, the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so even when Christ is uh, eating fish or when he's nailed to the cross in his human nature, in, in his physical appearance, uh, he's still the Trinitarian, he's still the second person of the Trinity, holding all things together, holding that cross together as he's being nailed to it. He could have snapped and done whatever he wanted to, and that's the kind of God that we had. So um, when Jesus is dead, uh, it's a tricky question. If you want to talk Christology, uh, theories of the, of the incarnation, we could talk about that. I love that. But um, <laughs> even in his humanity, uh, he's eternal. Just, just as we have an eternal soul, uh, Christ has an eternal God nature, and now, as he's taken on an eternal a human nature as well. Sparker. Last question. In the verses we read, Jesus talks about sitting at the right hand of power and appealing to God for the legion of angels. This language paints Jesus as divine, but kind of under the authority of God the Father. How do we know they are co-equal in the Trinity? It's, it's, a, it's a great question, and also just a great ob observation. Um, the, answer, the answer really to that is just simply that, 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 that the, within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal, equal in essence, equal in that they are all God, and yet they all, they all each of them take on different roles. So you see throughout the whole of Scripture, there's different roles in, in creation, um, they took on different roles there. They took, over, took on different roles in um, our salvation, and Christ died on the, the cross. The Holy Spirit resurrected him back to life. I mean, even in our lives today, we know that Christ is in heaven praying for us as his people, um, and yet the Holy Spirit is, is living within us. Um, so there's just different roles that they're, they're, they're doing, and then also, but also they are one essence, and they are all equally God.